0: Well, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we took what I intended to be one sermon and slowed way down, uh, making it three. Um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is all one long sentence with no pauses or breaks or periods. It's all one amazing anthem of praise to God for his role in salvation. We've noted that Verse 3 is kind of the the bedrock verse explaining that we're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that verses 4 through 14 are an explanation of what those spiritual blessings actually are. We saw that spiritual blessing number one was election. That we're chosen by the Father in verses 3 through 6. And that this happened in the past before the foundation of the world, the text tells us. We saw last week that spiritual blessing number two is redemption. So we're chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son. We see that in verses seven through 10. And that this redemption, we learned it's something that we have as believers, present tense. Today, we'll finish it off with spiritual blessing number three inheritance so we're chosen by the father redeemed by the son and assured by the spirit we'll see that in verses 11 through 14 so let's jump into the text and i'm going to actually read the whole section so that we can put this all together so ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 this is the word of the lord blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ to the praise of his glory. So point three, inheritance. We are assured by the spirit. Before we jump in at verse 11, I want us to see something as it relates to timeline. Uh, We've already seen where salvation began in the past, before the foundation of the world. We saw that redemption, spiritually speaking, is in the present, it's something that we have. And then, in verse 10, we see where all of this is headed, in the future, in the fullness of time, to unite all things in Christ. So uh, we see that salvation is multidimensional. It spans the breadth of space and time. We also see that it's Trinitarian, planned by the Father. Accomplished by the Son. And today, we'll see that it's applied by the Spirit. Planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. I told you that this was an astounding sentence. All of that in one sentence in in Ephesians 1. So, back in our text for the day, look at the first clause of verse 11. It starts, In him... We have obtained an inheritance. I know this is repetitive. It's because Paul's repetitive for a reason. Do you see the the constant cadence in this text of how everything, every blessing is in him? Paul wants us to know at the core of our being that all of our blessings come in Christ, in our union with him. Apart from him, we have nothing. That's why Paul confidently says in Philippians 1, 21, he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Everything that Paul is about flows from his identity in Christ. Put another way for the Christian, our in-Christness is our chief identity. Again, that's why Paul, again, in Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 29, says this. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, it's not that these distinctions go away upon our union with Christ. I want to be clear there. Women are still women. Men are still men. Nationalities still exist. But Paul's saying that those aren't your primary identities any longer. You're in Christ. And your in-Christness is the most important thing about you as a Christian. This will be a key theme as we continue on throughout the book of Ephesians, especially in chapters 2 and 3. There's so much unity amidst diversity for those who are in Christ. And because we're unified with him, we not only experience unity, but we experience freedom and new life. Romans 6 is so clear on this point that our union with Christ brings new life. That's why we read this text each and every time we baptize someone. It says this, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Pay attention to what it means to be in Christ here. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see that? When Jesus was was nailed to the cross, your sins were crucified with him, because you're in him. When Jesus was buried, your old way of life, your sin nature was put six feet under, because you're in him. And when he rose from the grave, you were made alive, given new and eternal life in him. Being in him is central to who we are as Christians. Okay, back in our text, verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. This is a, a tricky couple of words with two different options for their meaning. What does Paul mean here by we have obtained an inheritance? Well, in the Greek, this phrase is actually all one word, and the word is in the passive voice, meaning that it could be translated legitimately one of two ways. Number one, it could be translated this way. In whom we were made an inheritance. In whom we were made an inheritance. If translated this way, it makes us, as Christians, Christ's inheritance. And this isn't wrong. We see this truth in multiple places, particularly in the Old Testament, in reference to the people of God. Being God's inheritance. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. Deuteronomy 4, verse 20. It says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. For what? to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. The people of God as his inheritance. Psalm chapter 33, verse 12, says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage, or his inheritance. Psalm 135, verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel as his own possession. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus himself saying this in John 6:37. He says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." John 6:37. In other words, we are a gift given from the Father to the Son. We're His inheritance, which was won at the cross. Now, I want you to understand an implication of this. If you struggle with self-worth, realize this, that you are Christ's inheritance, a gift given from the Father to the Son. You will never be cast out, and that can never be taken from you. You matter to God. Write that down. Put it on your mirror in the morning or or in your car as a reminder. You are God's possession and his inheritance in Christ. So that's one way of translating this phrase. But a second way would be as it is in most of our translations. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Meaning that, that we have been given an inheritance to us, which is Christ. That Christ is our inheritance. This is also gloriously true. But we see this idea in the parallel text in Colossians 1 verse 12. And most clearly in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 4. First Peter 1, 3 through 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here we go, verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Can you imagine this morning? Can you imagine having a sure inheritance That's imperishable, perfect, and unfading. Christian, you have that in Christ. In him, we have an inheritance, the greatest inheritance in the universe. Think about this. If that's true, and it is, you can suffer any number of hardships here on earth. You can be persecuted. You can experience loss. You can even lose your life. And that inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's not going anywhere. It isn't changing. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What hope we have in Christ. And how does all of this happen? Paul's going to show us both sides of how this works in this text. First, God's rule. Back, back to verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you see this? We've uh, obtained this inheritance. Inheritance because it was part of God's predetermined plan for his purposes, according to his sovereign will. God planned it all. And what God plans, check this out. Everything that God plans, he does, always. And notice the breadth of this. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things according to the counsel of his will. It doesn't say God works a couple of things or even the majority of things according to the counsel of his will. All things. So I'll ask you this morning. Is your life part of all things? Is your salvation a part of all things? Yes. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereignly in control of all things. And this would be scary if God were not God. If if an imperfect being, think about this, if an imperfect being who sees and thinks and sins like we do, If that imperfect being were in control, sovereignly in control of all things, that would be terrifying. But we're talking about God here. He's perfect in every way. He's all-knowing. He sees everything. He's loving, gracious, and good. Do you understand that? We're in the sovereign hands of God. And they're good hands. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And part of that all things is our salvation, election, adoption, repent, or redemption, and inheritance. It's all part of God's plan. And he's orchestrating it perfectly, year by year, day by day, hour by hour, millisecond by millisecond. Isn't that comforting? And look at the end result here, verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Do you see why God gets all the glory and praise here? Because he's the one who's doing it all from beginning to end. Now, I want to point out two truths here. Verse 12, Paul uses the pronoun we We, who were the first to hope in Christ. Who's he talking about? Well, it's possible that he's saying we, who hoped in Christ before you, Ephesians, chronologically. But I don't think that's what he's saying. Paul seems to be referring to we, Jews, who were the first to hope in the Messiah. And that will become more evident as we move forward. So, the we is Jews. And the second word I'd like to point out is this word hope. Hope. Charles Hodge comments here that this word hope does not mean simply to expect, but to place one's hope or confidence in anyone. We see this idea in 1 Corinthians 15 19, where Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. Hope is about confident anticipation. It's not just a wish. Like, I hope I get a hole in one someday. No. Biblical hope is about joyous anticipation. So what Paul's saying here is this. The Jews hoped in the Messiah. And in God's provision and his promises given throughout the Old Testament. And in Christ, God has fulfilled them all. He accomplished the plans that he made before the foundation of the world. And they are the first fruits of the crop. All of this. Promises made. And promises fulfilled under the sovereignty of God. All of this. Results in praise and glory for God alone. But what about the Ephesian Church? Remember, they're not Jewish. they're Gentiles. Well, look at verses 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see that? Paul's setting up what he's going to be saying to them in chapter 2, that there's unity in the body of Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Gentiles aren't second-class citizens in the kingdom. They're part of the plan. They, too, were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, Look at what it is that Paul teaches here. Now, earlier, we talked about God's role in salvation, in choosing and predestining and adopting and redeeming. But look at the human responsibility here. First, there's hearing the word of truth. Hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Then, there's believing. Almost identical to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 verses 8 through 17. I know this is a long text. but I want us to see this clearly Romans 10 verses 8 through 17. Paul says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, will be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see it? Even though the process of salvation starts before the foundation of the world, it certainly doesn't end there. To be saved, we must hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're here, and you're not a Christian, this is why I repeat this great news each and every week. You must hear it. You must hear that you, along with every other human being, myself included, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're uh, unable to reconcile ourselves to God because we've fully rebelled against him. And because of that, each and every one of us deserves eternal death and damnation. You might be thinking, Drew, that sounds like bad news, not good news. There's more. That's just act one of the story. Jesus came to this earth. He lived perfectly in every way. He never sinned, not even once. And he went to the cross as our substitute to atone or to pay for our sins. He paid our debt in full, died, and was buried. Act two. Then he rose from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death. Now, look back at our text in Ephesians, verse 13. The final step as it relates to us is what? To believe, to believe. Not only do we hear the truth of the gospel, we must believe. We must trust or or put our faith in Jesus. This means to go all in on Jesus. To put your hope in him. To say, as we'll sing later, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness. To know that without Jesus' work on the cross, that you're sunk, that you have nothing. Belief isn't having one foot in the boat and one foot on the sand just in case. It's stepping into Jesus's boat with both feet, trusting him to carry you all the way. Now, does this mean that if you believe, you never have doubts or questions? Not at all. Thomas, one of Jesus's 12 disciples, is a great example of this. But that's another sermon. what I'm saying is, to be a Christian, to be saved believe in Jesus means that you're not putting your hope anywhere else. I'm not putting my hope in Jesus and my good deeds. I'm not putting my hope in Jesus and my ability to be good enough. I'm not putting my hope in Jesus and anything else. My hope my faith my trust is in him and him alone and even this ability to do this is a work of God. And look at what Paul says at the end of verse 13. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is amazing. Those who believe are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. First, think about this. He's the promised Holy Spirit. The same one that was promised to the Jews all the way back in Joel chapter two, all the way back in the Old Testament, Joel chapter two, verses 28 and 29. This is a promise given, and it says, and it shall come to pass afterward, that, and it's God speaking, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit, God says. Guess what? In Acts chapter 2, we see this exact promise being fulfilled. Peter preaches at Pentecost and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them, not just on them as he did in the Old Testament. Here in our text, Paul's saying that same Holy Spirit works In you, Gentiles, Ephesians, Californians. And what is it that this Holy Spirit does? He seals. He seals. What does that mean? Well, there are three primary uses of seals. All three of them apply here. Number one, seals are used to authenticate something as genuine or real. Two, Seals are used to mark as one's property. Third, seals are used to secure. Let me explain these. Number one, seal as authentication. If you've ever had anything notarized, you know how this works. You go and sign an official document. The notary watches you, confirms that it's actually you who signed it, and then puts their seal of authenticity on the book and on the document. It's a seal that's signifying that your signature is real, genuine. You also see this kind of thing with currency, right? The seal of the Department of the Treasury. It's not the Monopoly man on your $5 bill. It's the seal of authenticity that shows that it's genuine and real. Genuine Christians, hear this loud and clear. Genuine Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit showing them to be an authentic child of God. Romans eight, nine says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, pay close attention here. He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In other words, real Christians, not Christians in name only, real Christians, People who have actually repented and believed, as we sang earlier, true belief, true repentance, authentic Christians, all have the Spirit, thus sealing them as genuine. And the result of this is the fruit of the Spirit produced in their lives. Galatians 5, 22-23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So sealing as authentication. Two, sealing to mark as property. In my office down the way, I've got a book embosser with a seal on it that says, Library of Drew Cunningham. I put a seal on books so that people will know which books belong to me. Now, I don't go putting my seal on books that I'm borrowing from the library across the street. No. My seal goes on books that are fully mine. That I've paid for. Finished transaction. Same idea here. The Holy Spirit seals us. Marking us as God's possession. We belong to him. He claims us as his own. Finished transaction bought and paid for. We see this idea in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, where God's people are marked, marked off and sealed as being his chosen ones. Revelation 7, 3. Again, this is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. He says, this one belongs to me. He's mine. She's mine. Finish transaction. And God takes care of his possessions. None of his possessions end up in the garbage can. They're his. Third and finally, a seal was used to secure something. We saw this in the book of Daniel, right? Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. And what happens? Daniel chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions the king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. Verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his Lord's that nothing might be charged concerning, changed concerning Daniel. Basically, a seal was a way of a king or of an authority saying, I've shut this intentionally. It's secure. Don't open it or you're going to deal with the king. Only a higher authority could open it. And that's exactly what we saw in in Matthew chapter 27, 66, at the burial of Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 66, it says, so they went and they made the tomb secure. This is where Jesus, after he was crucified, dead, and buried, is where they buried him. They went and made the tomb secure. How? By sealing the stone, and setting a guard. You know the rest of the story. Three days later, that seal was broken and the stone was rolled away. Why? Because there was a greater authority than Rome. God himself. Christian, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're secure. No other authority is higher than that of God. And you're sealed by him. You're declared authentic. You're affirmed as God's possession. And you can have assurance that you're secure forever. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Can it get any better than that? Yes, it can. Keep reading in verse 14 sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So not only has the Holy Spirit sealed you, He's the guarantee of your inheritance. Another amazing word here. It's the Greek word arabon. And it means down payment or first installment or earnest money. Arabon. So understand this from two angles. First, any experience that you've had of the Spirit here on earth are only a down payment of what's to come. I love what Kent Hughes says here. He says, imagine the sublimest, most treasured experiences of the Holy Spirit we have ever had, and then realize they are only a foretaste. The tip of the tongue on the the spoon of what is to come. Remember the release in coming to Christ and knowing you were forgiven? Remember that? Remember that time when in worship you were smitten with awe. Remember the time you followed the Spirit's leading and were wonderfully used? Remember the satisfaction of finding the fruits of the Spirit surprising you with goodness where you once responded wickedly? Think of all of this and then multiply it a million fold. Here on earth, we have experienced the first dollar of a million celestial dollars. The earnest. Isn't that amazing to think about? The Holy Spirit is our arabone, our down payment of what's to come. And from a second angle, consider that a down payment is a promise to pay what? The full amount. It's a guarantee of full payment. Friends, God has never defaulted on a loan. He's never missed a promised payment. When the Holy Spirit seals us, He's God's guarantee that we'll receive the full inheritance that's been purchased for us on the cross. Do you understand who it is that's making us this guarantee? It's God. And He's good for whatever He promises how can we have assurance of salvation as Christians? Not because we grit our teeth and have enough strength or goodness or even faith, but because God has sealed us with his spirit and guaranteed our inheritance, which is Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 says it this way. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no one who starts the process who God doesn't bring all the way through. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. He elects, He adopts, He redeems, He seals, and He guarantees. We have this great assurance because we have a great God. Do you see that? And the result is to the praise of His glory. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all working in tandem to bring about our salvation. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray.